Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1946 film, The Best Years of Our Lives. So this film takes place probably 1946, just like the year of the movie. Yep. Uh, we follow three veterans returning home, and they're all... Uh, they're all of the same hometown, Boone City, Indiana. Uh, one character, his name is Homer Parrish. He was in the Navy. He lost um, hands, hands, sorry. And you also have Fred Derry. He was an air pilot. Al Stevenson. Al Stevenson. He was an infantry sergeant in the Pacific. Yes. And we get hints that he, he fought both on Iwo and uh, Okinawa in various parts of the film. And then the uh, Fred Derry, Captain Derry character, the only officer, by the way, uh, he 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 was uh, a B-17 bombardier in the European theater. And so they all come home and they all have uh, Al Stevenson is a banker. Fred Derry was worked previously as a soda jerk at a pharmacy store. And then you also have Homer Parrish, and he was engaged to be married to this, you know, the girl next door, literally. She's right next door to him. Yeah. And, and we should add also, I forgot to mention this, Homer Parrish uh, uh, lost his arms uh, as a result of a torpedoing of the aircraft carrier he was yes. serving in. He was below decks when it happened. Fire broke out, and that's how he lost his arms. And this, again, was in the Pacific Theater. Yeah, and so the rest of the film just follows their readjustment trying to come back home. Some have it more difficult. Like the main thing with Homer Parrish is how he, he feels uncomfortable the way everybody looks at his metal, metal hands. Yes. You know, he feels that everybody's, you know, either is trying too hard to ignore them or they're, you know, they just can't ignore them. Yeah. So he has trouble with that. Um, Fred Drury, he's he's was right before he got, went overseas. He got married, but it wasn't a very long marriage. And two months, yeah, it was that two was months. It. And right when we follow that, she had this. You know, she lived. You know, she was working at nightclubs, having this fun, exciting life. And now that she's, you know, she thinks he's going to have a lot of money because he was in the army, but he's not. And then that's not. Real, it's putting a strain on their relationship. And then Al's trying to get his job back at the as a banker, and he's getting a promotion, but also because there was some recent issues because he gave a loan to a war a veteran, but the veteran didn't have much collateral or anything. They say, "Well, this was this is a big risk. Why are you taking such a big risk?" So it's all about the readjustment to life, yes. and, and yeah. it, it's this was you think nineteen forty six. You think the the thing was. Um, it's a Wonderful Life, but this was, the reading about it, this was a massive hit. It was the highest grossing film of the year, not even close, nothing else was really even that close. Yep. At, look at the Oscars, it dominated, it won nearly every category, it won Best Picture, and this was, it's still, I mean, it's well regarded, I think, as one of the greatest films ever made, and you can clearly see why. Yeah, it holds up very well, and uh, the thing that impresses me about it just as a film is... Its length is three hours, but watching it, it seems like it's much less. Yeah. And it's very engrossing. And it's, I think, interesting from a historical perspective because it gives us a 
a picture of the return to civilian life that we, uh, you know, 80 years uh, in uh, uh, post-World War II, po- uh, by, uh, 80 years past the, the end of the war, uh, don't often think of. I mean, uh, typical of our generation, I think, you, you think of the, maybe the contrast, my, my generation, I should say, you think of the contrast in how people were treated uh, coming back from the Vietnam War as opposed to World War II. And the, and the typical description is that the World, uh, the World War II veterans were treated well and uh, Vietnam veterans were not. Um, and there was a lot less of, a, as it were, the angst of reentry uh, because of that. Well, this picture shows that picture or that sketch is not quite so simple. Um, you see the guys from the uh, coming back from World War II, these three characters, running into similar problems. And now, granted, it's not sometimes the outright hostility that you saw uh, uh, very often occurring when people came back from Vietnam, but um, it's certainly the insensitivity or perhaps, perhaps the almost in, the incomprehending nature of the people back home. Um, you see that with the with with uh, Ray Collins' character, the, the 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 bank president interacting with Al Stevens, and what they've done is uh, they put Al Stevens in, in. He didn't really want to go back to the bank, by the way. This is interesting, but they put him in charge of basically VA loans or, or veterans' loans, um, and he's as you described earlier, he. We have one instance where he gives a veteran who has absolutely no collateral to, to, to offer a loan because he basically looks him in the eye and says, this guy is a good guy. I, I've seen enough. I, I, being in, in, in my role as a sergeant, I've, I'm able to read characters. That's one of the things I learned in the military. And I see this guy's a good risk. And you can kind of see the, the, the two men, the Ray Collins' character and his direct uh, subordinate uh, question that loan question the wisdom of it and uh, uh, go ahead and they accept it but with a lot of reservations basically saying don't do this again right so you see that and and you see uh, on in the case of um, Captain Derry uh, him returning to life at that drugstore that he used to work at as you said he was just a soda jerk that's that's that was his job and then this is one of the things i like about this film by the way is you don't it thwarts expectations as to who was going to be the officer and who would be enlisted right you would assume that uh the frederick march character uh, uh al stevenson would have been an officer because he worked in a bank and, you know, probably had a pretty well-paying job. And you see he's got a, a, a very together family and lives in a nice place. Yet he was just an infantry sergeant. I, I like that. I like that playing with your expectations there. And they do the same thing with um, um, Captain Derry. You think, you assume, I, I know I did at first watching the film that, oh, he's going to go home. It's going to be a nice, he's going to have a nice house, good family, and so forth. Well, he literally uh, gets out of the taxi. Uh, I think it's, this is done on purpose by Weiler. In the background, you see a railroad track and the train going by. It's 
almost literally, quote, the wrong side of the tracks. Yes. <laughs> and and he goes to his parents' house. It's it's a hovel. Uh, apparently, it's his father and maybe a stepmother. It's not quite clear who she is. They're very loving. I mean, they, they live in a, a, a shack, but they're very loving. And uh, we find out again that, uh, as you pointed out, his wife has basically moved on with her life as if he had died. Yes. Right. And tragic and, again, unexpected for a captain. When he shows up, she sees, as it were, opportunity. She wants him to wear the uniform all the time so that she can use him as a kind of a ticket into the fancy clubs. Yeah, and he told her he had $1,000 from the Army, and that just lights her up. Oh, yeah, she's ready to chew it all up. This is Virginia Mayo character, by the way. She she does a great job with this role. But she's narcissistic. She's only thinking of herself. She's It's intimated that she's, uh, like I said, carried on affairs with other people um, throughout the film. Uh, again, a shock. You don't expect this, and I like the fact that he did this. Um, um, this is with with the captain, the Air Force captain. Uh, great, uh, and then so he's got those issues on reentry, and then the other the other character, Homer. His issues are really interesting. It, it does obviously stem from the fact that he's got prosthetics. He lost his hands, and there's an there is an uh, uh, a discomfort with that fact. In his family, and you're correct, they don't know quite how to respond to it. But in the character of Wilma, his fiancée, they never did marry before he left, she's never that uncomfortable with it. So a lot of the difficulties that Homer has are kind of of his own doing, in a way. Mm-hmm. And he explains it very... Um, dramatically in that scene where he eventually invites her up to to the room to see what he has to do at the end of each day take off the prosthetics and he says you know i'm basically helpless i'm an infant after that point i can't even smoke a cigarette if that door's locked and a fire starts or something there's no way i can get out all i can do is is scream for help like a baby that's what had been holding him back from going ahead with the relationship all this time and he had almost refused to believe she would handle it, but he also didn't allow her to handle it. Uh, he didn't want to subject her to that. And uh, that's probably the most poignant part of the film, I think. Uh, she not only accepts it, but she she uh, uh, expresses her, her willingness to do it and her love for him and her willingness to do that for the balance of their lives. Um, great. A great rendering of a common problem. Yeah, and I think we should now point out that Homer Parrish was played by Harold Russell. Harold Russell is is an actual amputee. He does. He, yes. he was using those prosthetics. That's this isn't movie effects or anything. He was an yes. amputee, and he won the Oscar for this supporting yeah. actor. And one of the things I was looking at, and this sort of bothered me, I was looking at a lot of promotional material for the film. I was looking at the posters. I was looking at the promotional photos you would see in newspapers or you would see playing out outside the movie theater. One thing that bothered me, he's not in any of those pictures. Yes, it's a glaring I mean, omission. And he know, is one of the three main characters. And uh, you have to ask why. Yes, and 
you because like one of the things that bothered me i'm looking at you look some of the stuff on wikipedia they show the picture they show everybody they got virginia mayo dana andrews frederick march myrna loy they even have hoagie carmichael who's a bit player yes. in this movie they're all in it but not yeah. him and i've tr- i look i googled it to yeah. see is he in any of these things is this a problem and he's not in any of that and i find that i don't know why would they feel that if they showed him with with his prosthetic arms, it would make people uncomfortable. I, I, I don't it's know. Quite it's quite possible. It's bothersome, they, and I did not yeah, like that. that uh, it's quite possible, and I don't know what Weiler thought of that. I mean, I, I tried to find some uh, information about his reaction to to the lack of uh, that lack in the posters, but I found nothing on it. Um, it's and it's interesting though um, because before this film, he had a documentary made about him by the. Uh, army film um companies um and it tells in detail his story he he lost his hands actually uh doing uh, he was a he was a trainer and educator in uh, demolitions and somehow or another uh, there was a fuse malfunction as, as he was teaching and it set off dynamite and took both his hands off and they they did about an hour-long documentary about the whole process he had to go through and it's interesting because you know the, the this film goes out of the way to praise the navy for all of the efforts they uh took to ease his transition into being a man that has to rely on prosthetics for the rest of his life you're right it, it, the gap is very telling and the only explanation i can think of is is you're right they they thought it would make potential audiences uncomfortable enough to choose not to go to the film and that in itself is an unsettling message yes and one thing you say okay the other he's not a, this was his debut film because he was not a professional actor so like you're gonna have the other guys sure because they're big name stars but you have to put him in here yeah and I absolutely feel that's just a terrible admission especially with the level of performance i was shocked to find he wasn't an actor mm-hmm. he's really good and he only did a couple. Like he, the next film he did was some movie in 1980. I forget the name of it, but it was that's well on after this. Yeah. So it's interesting how he never really had much of a career after this, or maybe he just chose not to and do something else. But. Well, he he did a lot of uh, work for uh, disabled veterans, yeah. and, and I think he even mentioned. I hope when he in his speech when he won the Oscar, he mentioned like I hope this helps a lot of veterans returning home. Yeah, and and so he he did a lot of as it were work behind the scenes, uh, but. As good an actor as he is, I'm mm-hmm. I'm surprised he didn't find more roles. Yeah, and if for people who are familiar with this show, probably figure we might be talking about this because a while ago we did the five came back series about John Ford, John Huston, William Wyler, Frank Capra, and George Stevens who went overseas during World War II. And this has got to be this is something I know Wyler definitely wanted to make be impersonal for him because connecting Fred Jerry, who was an air bombardier, he. Flew missions. Yes. Bombardier missions. And uh, famously, the Memphis footage of the Memphis Bell. And knowing, like, you taught, like, some of the people he saw, like, there was a shot during that Memphis Bell of a plane going down and crashing. So this this is something he definitely wanted to do. Yeah. And, again, I think uh, uh, he was, in particular, was very struck with the... Uh, as it were, I don't know how, quite how, how how to put it, but the divide between civilians back home that had not had these experiences and men that did, and uh, the almost incomprehending nature of those civilians. And he felt it was a moral responsibility, I think, for him and people that 
did experience this and lived with guys that experienced it on a you know day-to-day basis for years to inform the public on this because there is a social responsibility uh, on the part of society as a whole to um, uh, a stewardship responsibility to take care of their service members after they come back and um, while it's true that the government probably uh, shares a a uh, lion's or has a lion's share of that moral responsibility. When it comes down to brass tacks and practicalities, the people that actually end up shouldering most of the uh, task in a practical sense are going to be friends, family, and coworkers. There's only so much the government can do. And that's one of the messages of this film, I think, is just giving that awareness to friends, family, and coworkers that, you know, these guys have been through this kind of thing. There's going to be a great deal of adjustment. They are literally moving from one, as it were, culture mm-hmm. into another uh, with which they have not had contact for a while. And you've got to expect that they're going to have um, difficulties with it. And uh, um, uh, it's it's incumbent upon us as a society to have the appropriate uh, uh, sensitivities and respect for these yeah. guys. And don't handle it the way uh, Virginia Mayo does, because she probably handles it in the worst way possible. Yes. Yeah, and because when she's... she's because he's trying to talk about some of the things he went through with the war, and she just keeps saying, well, why don't you just snap out of it? Yeah, snap it, out of it. It's yeah. just amazing. It's the, just, the so callous nature. And then contrast that, because we forgot to mention that he falls, he meets and falls in love with Al's daughter. Peggy. Peggy. And she, and like that, the scene, how she's more accepting is that scene when, you know, it's he's had a bender and he's sleeping one off. And in the middle of the night, he has PTSD. He's having flashbacks to an air mission. Yes. And she's the one take, you know, comforting him, trying to make him calm and settle down. And when he tries, he's, he feels bad mentioning it yesterday. She says, you know, don't, don't worry about it. Yes. She's the one handling it perfectly fine. Yeah. And then Virginia Mayo's character is the one that's telling him to snap out of it. She's the one yeah. that's, you know, she wants to take advantage of his, you know, army status, like, oh, wear your, I want you to wear your uniform all the time. Yes. It, clearly, she just wanted to cash in on it, yeah. almost literally. Um, I, I love the relationship between Derry and Stevenson's family. Um, uh, they, uh, Myrna Loy's character, his wife, Al, Al Stevenson's wife, you know, uh, first of all, they've been married 20 years. So uh, she has a better handle on him as a character, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, she also knows that perhaps going out for that evening, and it's so funny because he, he, he invites her and their daughter, Peggy, and he basically says, because they're worried, is, is he going to be able to adjust? I mean, it's the first evening he's back. And uh, when he comes to the kitchen and says, hey, you know what, let's just go out on the town and have a good time, all three of us, they're almost relieved. They're going, there we go. That's how we can get him back into feeling more comfortable being at home. Let's go ahead and do it. We're kind of realizing this might get kind of crazy after a while, but they're willing to do it, right? And and Peggy drives. They're very responsible about it. Peggy doesn't drink, right? She's the one that's driving them Nora around. Charles and Myrna Loy's character. It's like the thin man where she's just like, okay, he's going to get drunk and go crazy. i got to yeah. put up with it. Yes. But it aids in his transition, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, you, you'll see that even though he, he drinks, you know, one more time before he does this speech, which uh, before the banking committee or whatever it is, um, which is a little bit understandable. He's nervous. Um, but he, he kind of it, it tapers off for him. He, he's not drinking as much, but it certainly aids his reentry. So th- they really have a good feel for each other, that family. And they take Fred in. And do the same thing for him, which you're right, the Virginia Mayo character just simply, it wouldn't even dawn on her. It's all about her. Yes. Yeah, but, but you know, Al's not when, because uh, Peggy admits that she's in love with Fred, and at the beginning, Al, like, he warns her, stay away from my daughter. So he's not exactly welcoming, because he thinks he's no. being a smooth operator, because he's already married. Yes. But it's sort, we don't really, because at the end, spoiler alert, at the very end, as... um. Homer gets married. We get married to Wilma, and it's at the wedding. Uh, Fred and Peggy reunite. Yes. At the end, they decided you know to be together because now Virginia Mayo leaves him. Yeah. We don't see Al's reaction. We don't see a reaction. Yeah, so. and you really want to see it. Yeah. And I kept. I remember the first time I watched this film. You know, it's one of those depth, uh, deep, mm-hmm. deep focus shots. Right. So you see the foreground. You see. You see um, Al in the background. Um, and you wait for him to respond because um, Fred and Peggy are looking at each other through the marriage ceremony, tearing up, and you know, uh, you know they're going to get together. So you want to see Al approve of it, and he's he's too focused, <laughs> yeah. he's too focused on Homer's marriage uh, to even notice. Um, but yes, he he he's not happy when he finds out that Peggy is in love with Fred, obviously because Fred's married. Um, but as we see at the end of the film, she leaves him divorced, says she's going to get a divorce. And uh, yeah, it's too bad. I, I kind of wanted to see that loose end tied up. And another interesting part of this movie we didn't mention yet is, um, so it's, uh, there's a scene when um, Homer's at the pharmacy at night with, uh, while Fred's working. And the customer comes in, and he's got a newspaper in his hand, and he's looking over at Homer, and Homer's kind. Homer's like, oh, "Okay, here we go again. I gotta tell him about you know my prosthetics." Yeah. But then the guy says, "You know, it's a shame that you had to go through all that for nothing." Yes. And then he starts saying, you know, he's talking about the causes of the war, and he says, "Well, the Japanese and the Germans, they didn't really want to fight us." Yeah. And I was wondering if you know, after once the war was ended. And we, you know, it was a clear victory. Were there citizens like that who, at the very end, were saying, "What did we do this for?" We're already questioning it. Uh, not only at the end of the war, but all the way through it, there were people, um, as there are today, that buy into conspiracy theories, according to which, and often these are anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, by the way, but according to which, um, uh, wars are caused by. Um, corporate interests or some other banking interests, something like that, with the intent of basically making money by using uh, international relations, countries, uh, and their militaries basically as pawns in the big money-making process. And that that kind of conspiracy theory mongering goes back a long time. People were actually talking about that uh, to some extent in the Civil War. Um, World War One and certainly in World War Two. Um, as a matter of fact, um, 
there was a, uh, people don't realize this, but there was an American Nazi party. And they held a rally in Madison Square Garden. And uh, just to get a taste for the repugnance of the thing, they had a big, big rendering of George Washington back of the stage. And they held speeches, and it came off very much like a political rally, you know, a political party's rally. Uh, a lot of people showed up for that. And this was obviously uh, pre-Pearl Harbor, but it was popular. And it, it kind of spewed that same kind of conspiracy theory. Um, and there were people that said such things throughout the war. Uh, Father Coughlin's another example. He was a, a very popular radio um, ministry um, based in Dearborn, Michigan. Had some similar kinds of conspiracy theories that he spouted. So there were a lot of people that believed these sorts of things, just as there are today. You'll, you'll hear this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, about the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War. You know, it's all just money-making, a very clever ruse to make a lot of money on the parts of uh, corporations, international corporations. Um, so, yeah, and it's com- it's completely understandable when Homer is personally insulted by this. Um, it, it takes all moral agency away from the Japanese and the Germans for what they did and, as it were, explains it away with... This ridiculous conspiracy theory. Yeah, and then he gets punched in the face. So at least, he, at yeah. least there's some justice there. And, and I, I love when Homer reaches over, just as about is the conflict is 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 about to hit its uh, climax. Right, mm-hmm. he reaches over with that hook and flicks off that American flag pin yeah. that the guy has on his lapel, and then and then Fred comes over and cold cocks him. Yeah. And then his boss says, uh, you don't even, he says, but you don't even need to tell me. I know I've lost yeah. my job. And he walks out and then uh, Homer walks over, looks down, sees that pen, picks it yeah. up and puts it in his own pocket. Wonderful scene. Great scene. All right. Getting close to the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you want to bring up? I forgot to mention that great shot when at the end, when Fred's going over to the junkyard, when they're oh, scrapping yeah. all those. Yeah warplanes and it's just such a connection to what he's feeling yes that is we can't neglect to mention that scene it's at the end of the film he's about to leave town i mean spoiler alert everybody he's about to leave town uh because he's had that uh uh final confrontation with his wife right and he's decided i'm leaving town uh al's mad at me i i can't have a relationship with peggy it's all done so he decides to leave and he he goes to an area where servicemen can get flights. And it also happens to be a boneyard. And they have these incredible shots of hundreds of thousands of bombers and fighter planes in various states of um, dissembling. And they're going to be used for junk. And so he climbs up into a B-17. And you can see he's very experienced at doing it. He knows the technique to get in there. And then he sits in the bombardier's seat, which is what he was doing in Europe. And he's lost in thought. And he's clearly kind of reliving things. And then this man comes up and says, hey, buddy, what are you doing in there? What are you doing in there? He snaps out of it. 
And he comes back down and he says, well, I used to, this used to be my office. I, I worked in one of these things. And then, I love the inner service rivalry bit here. Yeah. Uh, the guy yeah. says, yeah, well, while you fancy flyboys were getting your yeah. glamour, us guys in the infantry, uh, we were getting our butts kicked. Yeah. He goes, we could do this later or do you want to get me a job? <laughs> yeah. He says, do you want to take, right. So he, it dawns on him. Because the guy explains, you know, they're not just being scrapped. They're going to be melted down, and uh, some housing is going to be built with the results. And then it hits him. Wait a minute. I've been looking for a job. I don't want to be a soda jerk anymore. Uh, I, anyway, I got I quit, <laughs> right? Um, maybe this is my opportunity. He asked the guy, you see that respect after the inter-service rivalry mm-hmm. bit, and uh, he gets that job. And then it, that's the point where he decides to stay in town and goes to Homer's wedding sees Peggy, yes, and uh, you know all's going to be well with him, and you just wish Al would respond. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. (laughs) 